right. Well, good morning again. Today is the last day of 2023, which is crazy to me. Maybe it is to you. It seems like a blur, uh, even as I consider all of the things I've been thinking through, like this entire last year and all of the things that I was blessed to do. Um, and yet it seems to have gone so quickly. And so as we approach the text today, let's do that with humility, uh, a humility that says we need this, a humility that says, help us, Lord, help us to display your presence in our lives. The text today is a wonderful picture of God's presence and what God's presence will do in the life of a person. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 13, all the way through verse 22. So go ahead and turn there. Peter and John have been arrested. They had healed a man who was uh, crippled uh, all of his life, and they're giving all of the credit for that to the risen and exalted Jesus. And the rulers, the authorities, don't like that. They had put Jesus to death. And were confronted by these religious leaders, Peter and John, when they're asked, what name did you use to heal this man? Peter responds to them, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's where we left off last week. This incredible proclamation of Jesus and the salvation that can only be found in Jesus. Today we continue the story picking up from there. So if you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read, beginning with Acts Chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your grace that you pour out on us. You're so good to us. And so we ask that you'd help us in this time, that you would be good in shining the light of your word on our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. 
Verse 13 begins, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. This is talking about the religious leaders who have arrested Peter and John. And I really want us to consider this text. Just just give a little bit of background here, right? Think about the two men who have healed this crippled man and are now defending their case and the gospel before these religious leaders. It's Peter and John. Peter and John both walked with Jesus when he lived on the earth, when he was doing ministry. They're two of his 12 disciples. But we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't at all say that both of them were prized students. Peter didn't always believe Jesus. He couldn't accept that Jesus would lay down his life, that he would be killed, that he'd be arrested. In fact, when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be arrested, how did Peter respond? Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is being arrested, just like he had told them he would be, What did Peter do? John chapter 18, beginning with verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then after Jesus' arrest, Peter is standing outside the place where he's being tried by the religious leaders. And three separate people come up to Peter saying, you were with him. You're one of his followers. And how does Peter respond? He's afraid. Afraid to be identified with Jesus because he doesn't want to be arrested and persecuted like Jesus. And so he answers, I don't know the man. And now, weeks later, 
Peter has been arrested with John and is boldly professing his identity with Jesus or his identity in Jesus. And these religious leaders are noticing things about both Peter and John. First, they noticed boldness in them. Now, this is a a work of the Spirit in them. Neither Peter nor John were ashamed of the gospel any longer. Neither of them ashamed of Jesus. The Spirit has come into them and has changed them. And these leaders are noticing. They saw their boldness and they perceived, it says, that they were uneducated, common men, and it astonished them. Now, Peter nor John had the upbringing that these religious leaders had had. The religious leaders were trained from a young age in the Scriptures how to explain the Scriptures. They memorized the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew what they meant, how to teach them. Peter and John were uneducated. Now, that doesn't at all mean that they're saying, that the religious leaders are saying that Peter and John are are dumb. That's not what it means. They're not educated as teachers or as rabbi would be educated. So there's no reason that these two men should be able to expound on the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, that's what they had just done. They took a passage, which was Psalm 118, and explained it precisely as it was meant in the first place, pointing to the one who would come as Messiah and Lord, and they applied that to Jesus. And this astonished the leaders, because they shouldn't be able to do that. How could these men do that? They're not educated men. The third thing that the religious leaders noticed is the answer to how they could do that. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John had walked with Jesus as his disciples for three years. They listened to the way that he took the Hebrew Scriptures and explained them the way that God had intended them. How Jesus took the law and made it clear the heart behind it. They had watched how Jesus served other people. That He didn't take His position of authority and use it against people, but served them, loved them. That He denied Himself and counted others as more significant. He loved the least of these. Those that these religious leaders had kept at a distance, Jesus welcomed, and they saw that. They learned from Him. They've learned from Jesus. They didn't have formal education, but they learned from being with Jesus. Now, let me clarify two things on that. That, first of all, doesn't mean that formal education isn't a good thing. We know Paul somewhat boasts in his own. 
It's, it's, it's good to study God's Word, to study it, to be trained in it. This is not a text that in any way is implying that you shouldn't study God's Word and be taught and educated in it. And also, I'm not wanting or meaning to take it too far with my explanation of what it means that Peter and John, or that they noticed that Peter and John had been with Jesus. I've heard and I have preached sermons where that one statement is misinterpreted to mean that the religious leaders saw their boldness and power and attributed it to these people have been with Jesus. As if if they're saying it like that. These men have been with Jesus. That would have meant nothing to these religious leaders. It would mean nothing that they had been with Jesus and that it somehow give them some power or ability or anything like that. They, they wouldn't attribute power to Jesus in any way. They denied Jesus. The religious leaders denied Jesus. They simply mean that they recognized that these two men were two of the men who accompanied Jesus in his ministry. But that did mean something for Peter and John. Because they had learned Jesus' ways. They had become like Him by His influence, His teaching, His love, and the Spirit who came and did exactly what Jesus promised that the Spirit would do. It would remind them of all of the things that He had taught them. And the religious leaders, it says, are astonished at these men and their boldness and the fact that they're uneducated and yet speaking the way that they are. Verse 14 continues, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What can they do? They can't deny the fact that this man was actually healed. They all knew who he was. They recognized the man as the one who had been laid at the gate of the temple every single day. He could not walk. And so friends or family would carry him there every single day and lay him at the the gate of the temple. He'd been crippled his entire life. The people of Jerusalem all recognized him. So you've got the religious leaders who are at a loss here. What do we do? They can't deny this fact that the healing occurred. But they also can't say, oh well, as if it's not a big deal that the people who did this are going around saying, Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead and it's through him that this man was healed. Verses 15 through 17, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they send Peter and John away so that they can decide what they're going to do. Notice their words. What can we do? It's obvious to everyone, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everyone's hearing about this. Everyone 
knows that a notable sign has been done by these two men. A notable sign. They're saying we can't deny this happened and that it is a notable sign. That, that it's an actual miraculous healing. And it was done in front of a lot of people who all see it as a sign from God. So these religious leaders are acknowledging that the healing is a sign, but they don't necessarily know what that sign points to or how to deal with it. And so they decide that the best option is to command them not to talk about Jesus anymore. They're, they're going to threaten them. They don't believe that Jesus is an authority. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're threatening Peter and John and any others who speak about Jesus in that way. And so verse 18 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They go back to Peter and John. They give them their decision. Don't speak any more about this man or else. Or else there is assumed, right? It's a warning. So there's an assumption that there is an or else. What is that or else? These are the same people, these are the same religious leaders who arrested Jesus unlawfully and handed him over to Pilate and then stirred up others to call for Jesus' execution. And so there's this underlying threat here that would certainly include arrest and suffering in some way. And, and we'll see that as we move farther into the book of Acts. This command would include their public proclamations about Jesus as well as just the regular teaching that was happening. Called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. No more of this. No more speaking or talking about Jesus. They want it to stop. They crucified, they killed Jesus to put an end to this movement, and the opposite is happening. And now they come to these disciples, these apostles, and are saying to them, No more. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Now, this is incredible. Peter and John respond by putting it back into the religious leaders' hands, sort of putting it back in the religious leaders' hands. They asked them to consider something that every single devout Jew knew the answer to. You tell us, is it right for us to obey you or for us to obey God? You be the judge here. I mean, that's, that's what they were, the judges. 
You make a judgment as those appointed to instruct in the law of God. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? The answer is clear enough. I want to pause here for a moment. That question can be applied to so many things in life. In this culture that we live in, so many things we can apply this question to. Is it right for us to listen to man or to listen to God? And that's not permission to be some renegade going off on your own to tear a path with Jesus. We actually actually need man very often to help us know and understand what God is saying so we can listen to Him. And we have church history to help us through that. But are we asking the question, are we applying this to the things we're doing and not doing? Is it right for me to listen to man or for me to listen to God? The other thing I would mention here is we consider what Peter and John say here, how they respond to the threats of these religious leaders. Is it right for us to listen to man or to listen to God? We ought to thank God for those who have to ask this question again and again in their lives because they face persecution or death by listening to God. If they live in areas of the world where it's illegal or dangerous to speak about Jesus, and they have to ask themselves this on a daily basis, is it right for us to listen to man or to listen to God? We should thank God for those people, and we should pray for them. Peter and John are faced with persecution, and they respond with, you tell us, what is the right thing for us to do? Listen to you, or is it to listen to God? Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's beautiful. It's so incredible. We can't stop. We can't not speak about what we have seen. We can't not speak about what we have heard. We should stop here and ask, what have they seen and what have they heard that would lead them in the face of persecution, whatever that might end up being, to say, we can't stop. We can't not speak about what we've seen. We can't not speak about what we've heard. So what is it that they have seen and what is it that they have heard? Well, they've seen God in the flesh. The same God, the living God that Isaiah described this way, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With with two He covered His face and with two He covered His feet and with two He flew and one called to another saying, Holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And John, in, in chapter 12, John tells us he was speaking, Isaiah was speaking about Jesus. Jesus. They've seen the living God. And they've seen that God in the flesh live out the laws of God perfectly. Full of love and full of mercy for all who would come to Him. They have seen for the first time in their lives perfect love. In and through Jesus. They've seen power in the peaceful Messiah. Power that spoke and immediately calmed the storm. Power that caused the blind to see, the crippled to be healed, the dead to live. They've seen love for others that led their friend, their teacher, their Lord and King Jesus to allow Himself to be arrested and tortured and to be killed so that God's promises could be fulfilled and mankind would be healed. Forgiven of their sins and restored in their relationship with God. They have seen His resurrection and His glory. He came to them again and again after He was raised from the dead and they stood and watched as He was lifted up, ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And they heard they heard his teaching about the restoration of Israel and their commission to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They heard from him about God and his love. They've been taught the law by God's very son, fully God and fully man. They've heard God the Father's voice after seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain before them, saying from heaven, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Ultimately, they have seen Jesus and heard the one John describes in John chapter 1 saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and because this is who and what they have seen and heard they respond to these religious leaders we can't not speak about the one we have seen and from whom we have heard. Continues in verses 21 and 22. And when they had further threatened them. They let them go. Finding no way to punish them. Because of the people. For all were praising God. For what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing. Was performed was more than 40 years old. Religious leaders threaten them again, but cannot do more. Why? A man had been crippled for his whole life, which we find out here was over 40 years. 
and has been miraculously healed. And the people are giving all of the credit to God. All of the praise to the one they know did this, God. They're praising God for what had happened, and these religious leaders won't go against them at this point. It's just an incredible display of grace and of courage by Peter and John, and a wonderful reminder for us. At least one of these men struggled with fear in the face of persecution. We know that from the Gospels. But God changed him. The Spirit of God brought boldness because of what Peter had seen and heard from Jesus. His presence with Jesus, the fact that they had been with Jesus, changed them. I'll tell you, as a person who struggles with anxiety and fear of confrontation, that's a huge encouragement to me. It says to every single one of us, whether you struggle with fear or not, God loves you. Just the way that you are. And He will accomplish His promises and His purposes in your life because of His love for you and His commitment to you. Not because of the kind of person you were, but because of the kind of God that He is. He is faithful. He is good. He is kind. When we go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together, what a blessing as we come to the end of this year to end our time together remembering what is the main thing. That Jesus' body was broken and His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what Jesus told us to remember each and every time we take the bread and the cup together. That it's a reminder of Him and His work for us. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 saying as often as we do it, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is no better way for us to go out of this year and come into the next than by proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's a blessing and a joy that we can do this. And so you'll be dismissed to come row by row Come and receive the bread, receive the cup, and take it back to your seats as we sing, and then we'll be led to take it together. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, you're so good to us. We're unworthy of your love and your kindness. Peter and John were unworthy of your love and your kindness, and yet you showed it through them and to them, Lord, through this healing and through the courage and boldness to speak before these religious leaders of the power and the faithfulness of Jesus. And so we want to do that, Lord. Even in this time as we go into taking the bread and the cup together, we want to do that. We want to proclaim and we want to believe your death. That your body really was broken for us in our place that your blood really was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So help us, Lord, we pray.
and be glorified in these moments. In Christ's name, amen.